And welcome in Magic Weekly, the podcast. Jake Chapman here with you, the final Magic Weekly edition of the season. The uh, Magic fall last night in Philadelphia, 128-117, the final score, 21-51 on the season. Um, and coming up next, we will have the NBA Draft Lottery that will be on Tuesday, June 22nd. And then the big day will be the NBA Draft, and that will be on Thursday night, uh, about five weeks later. That'll be July 29th. And we have kind of a roundtable pod here for you. Uh, to wrap up the season, both Dan Savage and Josh Cohen from OrlandoMagic.com. Philip Rossman Wright joins me from the uh, Locked On Magic podcast and Orlando Magic Daily. Uh, so we will break down what has been a, a very trying season, but a transformative one, I think, for this Magic franchise. And guys, I appreciate you joining me. Um, let's just dive right in. Philip, I want to start with you. Um, trying, long, arduous, when you think back on this season. I loved, by the way, the question the other day uh, to Steve Clifford. I think Josh asked it uh, about the Martel Fultz injury and what it meant. And Cliff was like, everything. I mean, it obviously changed the franchise. When you think back, Philip, on the ripple effects and what one injury can mean for a franchise, I mean, literally, it, it, it changed everything. And it could have changed the course. It did change the course of the franchise uh, for years to come, thinking back on it now with a little bit of hindsight, Philip, what what jumps out to you towards this, uh, about this season? What are some words that pop into your head about it? I mean, injury filled is is the is the word, right? Uh, it it it's just it's so it was so hard to assess or get any assess what this team was or get any kind of rhythm because it was just constantly injury after injury after injury. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, certainly the big injuries, Jonathan Isaac being out the entire year. Uh, Marco Fultz missing almost the entire year. Those certainly, you know, play a huge role, but it's, you know, you, you look at it, Evan Fournier with the back spasms that kept him in and out of the lineup from, I think it was game four when he suffered the back, or game uh, five when he suffered the, the back spasms against the Sixers. Um, that, that was really the first first issue. And then Michael Carter-Williams was in and out of the lineup. And it was just uh, kind of like, especially in a season like this where there's very little practice time, there's very little rest and recovery time. Once a team got behind injury-wise, you know, unless they had the depth to sustain it, which, you know, this Magic team, you know, I think was deep, but they needed their key guys. They didn't have guys who could kind of fill in for those key guys. Um, once the Magic were behind on injuries, there was just simply no catching up. Um, you know, again, you, you lose Aaron Gordon, I think, for a month, Cole Anthony for two months. It's, it, it's just there's just no way for this group to catch up and, and, and gain the rhythm that was going to be necessary for them to be successful. So, yeah, the injuries are completely the story, you know, big or small. Josh, I think, you know, Phil made a good point. It's something I've been thinking about. How difficult must it have been and, and probably, um, probably still is even to assess what it is you have when everybody's hurt? Like, you, we probably will never know. We, we, we definitely will never know exactly what there was with that roster. I think probably, you know, making the decision to sort of pull the Band-Aid off and, and start the rebuild um, at the trade deadline. I think we all agreed that, you know, it was, it was probably a wise move because there probably was a ceiling on that group. But, man, we never really saw. We never really saw Jonathan Isaac at the point where he was. We haven't seen Jonathan Isaac um, for, you know, more than a handful of games in, in what, 17 months now um, almost. And then with the way Markel was playing in the first eight games, I mean, it, it, has, it takes some – it takes some intestinal fortitude to, uh, to, to sort of pull the trap door when you don't know exactly what you have because injuries robbed you of that, Josh. Yeah, obviously, as Phil touched on, the injuries were the main storyline of the season. But 
Turnover could be awkward sometimes, but sometimes I think turnover is necessary. In this instance, it clearly was, in my estimation. Uh, I think while Vucevic was having a career year, Aaron Gordon is a stellar defender. Fournier obviously had his moments throughout his time with the Magic, but there was no true superstar on the team. It was probably going to be a dead-end street, ultimately, where the team was at best going to be a 6, 7, or 8 seed in the playoffs. And that isn't an ideal scenario when you're trying to take steps forward. So now with the youth movements, we'll get to really see as time evolves who sticks and who doesn't. Obviously, based on the way the season ended, Cole Anthony, RJ Hampton were two guys that really shined. I think Wendell Carter had his moments when he came over from Chicago. And then as you touched on, Jake, you know, we don't know yet precisely what J.I. and Fultz are going to look like when they come back from injury. But the good news there is that before they got hurt, they were playing their best basketball of their career. So from that angle, I think there's a lot of optimism. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the potential two incoming first-round draft picks, one that you're definitely going to have. And then the other one could be somewhere around 9, 10, 11 from Chicago, assuming they don't move up in the lottery. So I think there's a lot of excitement from that perspective. I think based on where things were through all the injuries, it just made sense to turn it over and have the reset so we can get a real up-close look at the young talent that currently is on the roster. Dan, that idea of of kind of like building from the middle, right? Sort of being trapped, quote unquote, in NBA purgatory, where you're somewhere between the sixth and the tenth best team in the Eastern Conference. You have this, you know, somewhat veteran roster, but it's it's perhaps capped out. Um, it, would it have been different, Dan, if if we were a different market? If we're Chicago and we've got what's a, a pretty solid team and we think we just need one more piece that we can go out and grab in free agency because we're Chicago and people like to come to Chicago, it, how different a scenario is that than, than what we have here where maybe we aren't as big a free agent destination? And so now you say, you know what, if we don't do this through the draft, then we're not going to be able to do it properly at all. You know, that, that's a tough thing to, to really analyze. I think the other thing you have to consider is, you know, not only are they a smaller market, but when you look at the Orlando Magic, they were in some salary cap trouble. You know, yeah. they were up against it. It wasn't like they had the, the money to go out and, and just add a guy. Uh, you know, when you, whether you consider, you know, Al Farouk Aminu's contract that was on there that they obviously weren't getting their return on investment. When you look at, you know, some of the, the past guys, I think Tip, Timothy Moskov still getting paid a little bit from his time here. Awesome. So, nice. so there were some things in there that, you know, pushed you up against it. And you also had to consider that this roster, regardless, it was going to look tough, uh, you know, next season for it to look the same when you consider that Evan Fournier is a free agent, Aaron Gordon, Nikola Vucevic are going into the next years of their deals. So it, it was really tough to look at it that way. You know, for my game previews, I end up talking to people throughout the league and for the rivals reports, some people on the record, some people off the record. And it was very interesting when I talked to people from other teams who were kind of looking at it as outside observers. It was almost universally uh, praised that the Magic made the decision that they did and went for the rebuild rather than kind of sticking course in the, you know, six to eight range. To me, the thing that would have been interesting is, as Phil and Josh both alluded to, is would this have been the decision, because I don't think it would have been, if this team remained healthy? 
And you have to go all the way back to the bubble for that to truly, uh, you know, exist. If Jonathan Isaac's here, if Markel Fultz are here, there's no reason, in my opinion, that this team couldn't be, you know, like the Knicks competing for that fourth seed in, you know, a weaker Eastern Conference than I think even expected. I think people expected Boston to be a solid team up there towards the top, and it hasn't turned out that way. And so if injury is the key word or injury riddled, whatever you want to allude to there, I think the other aspect of it is, you know, the truncated schedule. Because when you look at what Steve Clifford's been able to do with the continuity on this roster, you know, he's, he's a superpower unto himself and he'll never admit to it. Uh, but when you talk to other people throughout the league, you know, he bested two great coaches in, in Bud and Nick Nurse in game ones of playoff series where he had better game plans and his teams, in my opinion, were more prepared. Now, he'll never say that. But when you talk to other people throughout the league, it was clear. And that got this team two playoff victories, uh, you know, first playoff victories in quite some time. So without the team being able to practice and then being able to take advantage of its continuity, you know, it put them in a rough situation. So looking forward to next year, I think there's got to be some optimism that not only will they have guys back and new additions added, but you'll also regain, hopefully, if we get back to more of a normal schedule of Steve Clifford's biggest asset, which is game planning and practices. It's a, it's a great point. And I mean, I, and I do want to ask you guys about the job that he's done this year, because I don't know, the, the thing would have gone way, way off the rails, I think, if Steve Clifford isn't around. Philip, when you think about the future and, and when you think about that decision um, that the front office made, you know, I, obviously the picks are huge. Um, obviously, the young talent is huge. The flexibility, like clearing El Farouk Aminu and at least being able to, to get to the table in free agency um, at some point. How do you kind of rake, uh, rank in hindsight the assets that, you brought, that they brought in at the deadline and now moving forward? Like what was most important to come out of this season? Once the decision's made, we're going to spark a rebuild. Um, how do you sort of go through and rank the different assets and, and the different flexibility and leverage that you now have moving forward? Um, as far as the picks, as far as the young players, and as far as the flexibility goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just kind of want to build off something that Dan, said, that Dan said there, that, you know, one thing that I think, you know, as the Magic were assessing whether to make this move or not, or whether to, to kind of hit the reset button, you know, the one guy, you know, Aaron Gordon was a bit of a ticking clock. He had like a, he had what, one more year left on his con- contract. Um, you know, so, so this was the time to trade him. Evan Fournay, obviously, time had kind of expired on him. Nikola Vucevic was the one guy the Magic could have hung on to. And I think, you know, as they were trying to, again, clear some cap room, what, what they assessed and what they determined was that this draft class and having two top 10 picks in this class particularly was probably worth the gamble. And, and I think that's and I think more than anything else, like I would tell people before the trade deadline or even and after the trade deadline, you know, the, the big marquee name that you're getting back in, a, in the trade, like when you trade Aaron Gordon, the name that you're, you're getting to match salaries is not the guy that you're after. You know, like Gary Harris right. is a nice player. I think he's going to be really valuable. RJ Hampton was the guy they were chasing. RJ Hampton was the guy that they really wanted. And there's no deal if RJ Hampton's not included. If they tried to include some other veteran player or, you know, another one of their younger, Bull, young Bull. guys. Yeah, if, if they tried to include Bull Bull, Bull 
um, well, maybe not Bull Bull, but um, if, they, if, they, if, they, if, they, if they tried to include someone else, that deal doesn't happen. It was, it, they wanted RJ Hampton. Um, the, the, Bull, the, Chicago, the Chicago deal. Wendell Carter is a very, very nice player, and I think the Magic were really happy to get him. Um, but the, the prize that they wanted were those two first-round picks. Um, the chance to have two top 10, you know, I don't think at that time maybe they thought they'd be a top 10 pick. I, I think they thought, you know, this is going to help Chicago make the playoffs, and that'll secure us, uh, you know, 13, you know, they'll be in the playing tournament. That'll, that'll get them a, a 11, 12, 13, 13 type pick. Um, but to get two top 10, to get the potential for two top 10 picks, your own plus what you're getting from Chicago, that was the real prize. And so to me, when I, you know, the, the, the thing that I have been most uncomfortable with, with what the Magic did, um, but I understand the gamble that they're making, and it's probably the right gamble to make, is whether these deals are successful or not, or whether these deals set the Magic up for their future or not, Depends on what happens on June 22nd. Um, if the Magic, you know, who, you know, finish the season with third, third in the lottery standing, so they'll have the top odds to win the lottery. Um, if the Magic end up in the top four and that Bulls pick conveys at, at, set, at eight or nine, then the Magic have set themselves up really, really well. Um, if, the Magic, if the Magic's pick falls out of that top four and, and they end up picking fifth or sixth, then the future outlook looks very, very different. So, you know, I think the most important asset that they got was, you know, securing their own draft position and by making their team a little bit worse. Um, but also, but also kind of giving themselves some young players, obviously to kind of begin building around and growing around and figuring out what they have, because, you know, young players are always super valuable. Um, you know, Magic are going to need some big salaries to move around still to, to kind of make maybe those, those moves that they want to make to kind of to shore things up. But, um, but the biggest asset that the Magic got was the draft position in this year's draft because this is a draft that they put really all their eggs in. Phil brings up a good point about, I, I think, you know, hell, Aaron asked out, so, so, so that was going to happen. Um, I think Evan, you know, everybody knew that more than likely he was in, I think he admitted as much, or at least it was reported he admitted as much. He was going to explore his options in free agency. The big thing that it is kind of hard for Magic fans to get over was trading Vooch. He's second all-star season, um, you know, he's so important to us here. And he obviously <clears throat> um, was a big part of everything that was going on here. Josh, when you think about, okay, we're going to rebuild. So the decision is made. We're going to move on from Aaron, we're going to move on from Evan, um, and we're, and we're going to go with the youth movement. You know, the argument on the other side to keeping Vooch, trading away the other two, keeping Vooch, and trying to sort of, um, I'll say, it's kind of half-ass a rebuild is that you can, you know, having Nikola Vucevic to help develop young players is a big key. And I've seen this in Cleveland, right, with Kevin Love. And it's probably a bad example. It's Kevin Love throws tantrums all the times and um, can't stay available. But the idea, Josh, of having a veteran to sort of expedite the development of young players, especially young guards, um, versus, versus sort of tearing it all down. And, yeah, you can still have veterans, but they're going to be more along the molds of Michael Carter-Williams um, then Vooch, how do you sort of weigh that in your head, Josh? And because w what I keep going back to is, okay, that's great. But is that fair to Nikola Vucevic to say, Hey, the next two, three years, years number 30, 31 and 32, as far as your age goes, is going to be devoted to helping develop a player like RJ Hampton. I'm not sure that's fair either. Um, how do you kind of weigh, weigh the options of, uh, of, of the decision to move away from Vooch and what he could have done if he were here as kind of the veteran piece in the middle of a rebuild? Well, first off, Jake, I'll say this. There is a false narrative that exists in the NBA, and that is when a blockbuster trade is made, the team that gets the best player in that moment wins the trade, mm. which 
lately the last few years has been the complete opposite. Think about the Chris Paul to Houston deal, right? The Clippers, not only did they get a slew of very good players in that deal, Patrick Beverly, Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, two of whom were six men of the year. They also freed up a lot of salary cap space, which ultimately landed them both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, although Paul George was more in a trade scenario. Think about that deal. Think about the Jimmy Butler to Minnesota deal where the Bulls got Zach Levine, Laurie Markkinen, and also freed up some space flexibility-wise. Now, Butler obviously is a great player. Chris Paul is a great player, but it didn't really work out that well with the teams that they went to in those particular deals. I mean, Butler was in Minnesota for a year and a half, and then he ends up getting moved to Philadelphia. So this is happening quite frequently, and it's I don't think it's going on a limb, but it's too early to truly predict how it's going to play out. But I would not be surprised if ultimately the Magic win both the Bulls and Nuggets deals. I mean, I think already as far as the Denver one with Aaron Gordon, now if Denver does not make the finals this year or next year and RJ Hampton continues on the path that it appears he's headed down, I mean, based on the way he finished the season, at his age, it looks like he's going to be a very promising player for a long time, not to mention the 2025 draft pick that Orlando will get from Denver. I think there's a strong chance that ultimately when we look back at that deal, we're going to be like, oh, that was a steal for the Magic. So that's the first point that I'll make. Secondly, as far as the veteran leadership, to me, what is more important than that is timeline. Like I think player, the core guys of a team need to all be on the same timeline. I understand that sometimes you can have too many young players. We kind of saw that in the previous era with the Magic where you had Victor Oladipo, Tobias Harris, Vooch, Fournier, Aaron Gordon, Alfred Payton, where they were all on the same timeline and there was no true hierarchy. Like nobody really knew who was better than who. I mean, I remember back in 2015 or so, there was a huge debate between Tobias, Oladipo, and Vooch. Like who's the best player? I mean, nobody really knew and everybody had their own opinion. Obviously, the last couple of years, it was established that Vooch was the best player on the team. So, yes, it's possible that if you have too many young guys, they interfere with each other. But I'd rather have that scenario than have guys on different timelines, essentially all competing for equal playing time. And if you kept Vooch on the roster at only 31 years old, he's still going to demand ample playing time. Sure. This is not like the twilight of his career where he can serve in like an Adonal foil role and contribute in development purposes, you know, kind of like it was with foil teaching Dwight Howard, for example. Uh, so to me in the end, yes, veteran presence matters, but I think you can only care about that once you have the core pieces in place. So for example, let's just say hypothetically the magic get these two top 10 picks and both of them go on to be great players. Well, those two guys, in addition to guys like Cole Anthony and RJ Hampton and Wendell Carter, whoever else, well, at that point, then you add on the veteran presence where you can sort of seal the deal by having the blend of quality young talent with a guy who can provide that inspiration and that discipline and that you know, locker room presence that every championship team has. But until you get there, to me, the whole veteran uh, aspect to me doesn't really apply until you have the necessary pieces in place. That's probably the best way I would, 
I would analyze it. We have Bill Simmons to blame for that for that best player narrative thing, don't we? I, I feel like uh, – like, We've made that comment a few times. I think a few <laughs> others as well. I think it's the easy – I mean, listen, there's no question that when you look at the all-time most memorable trades, it's true that in many of them it was a steal where the team that got the definitive best player ended up, you know, steamrolling – the deal, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant going to the Lakers on draft night in 1996. I mean, Vladi Divac was a really good player, but nowhere close to the potential that Kobe had. I mean, it, there's a long list there, but I would say in the last several years, and one of them involved the Magic in 2012. I mean, the 14 deal involving Dwight Howard, while no team necessarily made out extremely well from that deal, I think it's pretty obvious that the winners of that trade were the Magic by getting Nikola Vucevic. I mean, Andre Iguodala was with Denver for one season. Andrew Bynum didn't play a single game in Philadelphia. And Dwight was with the Lakers for that one season, and he was already deteriorating. So uh, there's no doubt in my mind that this idea, this, uh, this narrative is, is outdated, and it's changing rapidly. And the more, the more I look at these deals where it's a seller versus a buyer, I'm actually usually more in favor of the seller and their perspective than I am the buyer. There's exceptions. I mean, James Harden going to Brooklyn probably is an exception unless somehow, you know, the Nets fail to meet expectations in the playoffs, but James Harden's also potentially a top 10 player of all time. So it's, it's different when you talk about those level players, but when you're talking about B level guys, you know, borderline all-star guys, then I usually side with the sellers because they're trying to eventually get one of those a caliber players, one of those top 10, top 20 all-time players as hard as it is to attain one of them. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's changed so much. Like, we didn't have pick protections back when we are talking about some of these deals or um, all the different ins and outs. I mean, it's just a different sort of marketplace, I think, than it was when a lot of these narratives formed. And, it, and, and you bring up a good point about the Dwight trade. I mean, and then if you want to do like the Laramie Tunsil thing with Vooch spinning it forward and what you ended up getting from Vooch and what that could turn into, um, trading Dwight Howard in 2012, in hindsight, maybe the best thing that ever happened to this franchise, uh, which is really crazy to think about because we all were here. I think we all were pretty bummed about it at the time. Um, Dan, the, going back to that veteran thing, as you, because I agree 100%, like you got to know if you're coming or going, timelines are so important. But with that said, like, um, and I want to ask you guys about the process in a minute and see, and see if you think it worked. But like, I, I think we all agree probably you can't have just a bunch of kids running around. There has to be some veteran presence on roster. I don't know how good the veteran needs to be. I agree 100% with Josh. Like, you can't just have a Donald Foyle. And actually, I don't even know if, if, if Josh believes this. But, like, a Donald Foyle is great. Jared Dudley is great. You can't just have guys like that. You can't just have end-of-roster guys. You have to have some veterans out on the floor with you, guys like Gary Harris, I think, Michael Carter-Williams. Um, what, what do you feel like the roster breakdown should kind of be in that regard, Dan? Um, how much veteran help do you need? Should it be a whole bunch of young players figuring out together? Um, or do you need a nice mix? I think that's the big question that they're going to, the magic brain trust is going to ask themselves over the course of the off season. The biggest difference from the Dwight Howard trade to now is that the, this magic rebuild has a plethora of young talent already on it. When you looked at when they moved on from Dwight, uh, there were a lot of contracts on there, veterans, et cetera, that were either overpaid because this team was trying to get back to the finals and maximize Dwight Howard's window, 
So you had a lot of pieces that just weren't, you know, considered valuable by other NBA teams, either because the player was declining or because of their, you know, contract structure. The difference now is, you know, this Magic team already has a lot of valuable young pieces on it. And on top of that, you know, you're getting back two players who are almost like free agent acquisitions when you look at Jonathan Isaac and Markel Fultz because, you know, they weren't here. And what also makes them valuable is they know Steve Clifford's system, his principles, and they know how to play within them and at a high level. I mean, Jonathan Isaac is widely accepted as, you know, a great defensive player. He knows, you know, Steve Clifford's system and he, and he excels in it. Markel Fultz is a floor general, is, you know, exceptional in, in delivering the ball to his teammates where they want it. So they've got a little bit of a head start this time and some guys who already know how to play within the head coach's uh, structure. So I think that gives them a little bit of a heads up, you know, to start things with. I think that the other thing that'll help differentiate this from the prior rebuild, if it, if it becomes clear that they've got one guy at least that is a superstar level score, because if you have that, it's really easy to fill out the hierarchy below it. And we won't know that until this team takes the floor next season. And we've seen the gains that certain players have made. We've seen what players are added. That'll, that'll certainly help things. I think that was the biggest, you know, struggle with that last team is you had a bunch of B plus guys, but not quite, you know, the A level players. So if you're Vooch, it's really easy to think I'm as good as Tobias Harris or better. If you're Aaron Gordon, it's easy to think that if you're Tobias Harris, et cetera, you know, you could go down the line. So those things will certainly help. I think once you know what players you've added in the draft, then you could start looking, okay, where do we have holes and what veterans are available to fill those holes? And, you know, there is, you know, few places better than Orlando where you're going to be living, you know, 72 plus weather year round, no state tax. Uh, how many players end up retiring here? You know, it, for guys later in their career who have families, this is a great place to be. So I think with the young talent, the players throughout the league know there's stability with Steve Clifford and Jeff Weltman. Uh, I think that's a little bit different than the last time around. I think, you know, the Magic will be able to better add veterans this go around than maybe the prior one. I know Glenn Davis slander when I hear it. When I hear it. <laughs> oh, man, what a time that was. That was um... – that was a that was a strange time uh, as the Dwight Howard era came to, came to a close here in uh, in Central Florida. But um, in, with hindsight, uh, I think probably uh, an era that needed to end. Phil, let me ask you something. When you when you think back on that, and this is just sort of a, a quick aside, when you think back on the early days of the Rob Hennigan era, and and when we go back and we name and, and talk about kind of the pecking order and and the roster in place. Was he on to something? I mean, there was some young talent here that if you think about what it could have looked like had it, had it been given time to, to grow together, um, do you think it was kind of premature to pull the plug on? And, and we don't need to go through and rehash all of the different decisions, but just the idea of like Vooch, Tobias, Oladipo, you know, Harkless, O'Quinn, some of the young talent you had, um, felt like maybe, maybe it should have been given a little more time to incubate. 
I mean, I, I think I think the, the the problem with the Rob Hannigan era was never identifying talent. Um, you know, you know, you, you can argue with maybe some of the draft picks that he used and, and how he chased players. And you know, I think he certainly suffered from a very bad case of bad luck. I mean, I think again, like I'm talking about how so much of what Jeff Weltman's planning to do this year depends on where the Magic end up in the lottery. A lot of what Hennigan wanted to do depended on where he ended up in the lottery, and he ended up, you know with the second pick in a really bad draft. And he got Victor Oladipo, who's a really great pick. Um, but then he also ended up fourth in a three-player draft that, that you know, they really wanted to get a, a kind of star player. And, and you know, Aaron Gordon wasn't a, wasn't a bad pick at all, but, you know, that a lot of the franchise's future was, was, was pinned to him. But the problem was never identifying talent. I mean, obviously, Tobias Harris is a borderline all-star. Nikola Vucevic is a two-time all-star. Victor Oladipo is an, all, is, is an all-star level player when he's healthy. Um, it, the problem was never identifying talent. I think the issue was providing the infrastructure uh, you know, both on the court and kind of off the court to kind of foster the development. Like, like what was said before, um, there wasn't really a hierarchy. It wasn't clear who the best player on the team was. And, and I think sometimes guys try to take it without actually having it. I mean, you know, I think Victor Oladipo said on the Woj pod um, when he, when he was uh, leaving Oklahoma city for Indiana that, you know, in Orlando, it just felt like everyone was trying to prove themselves too much, that everyone was trying to kind of make their own mark and it, and it didn't really help the team as much, or they didn't really come together as a team as much. And I, I think a big part of that was coaching, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's not that Jacques Vaughn is a bad coach uh, or, that, or that Jacques Vaughn uh, or, 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 you know, any of the other coaches that the Magic had, um, you know, didn't, aren't, aren't good coaches or won't be good coaches eventually. I mean, we saw what Vaughn did in the bubble last year with the, with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, but I, I think what happened was, you know, you had Scott Skiles come in, you know, a little bit more of a disciplinarian, a little bit more of a structure guy. Um, you know, he provided the team with kind of the structure to be better and, and they performed really, really well. I mean, obviously there were some other issues going on with Scott Skiles um, that we don't need to rehash here, but um, that, the Magic got to 35 wins and it felt like they were making some tangible steps forward that season. Um, and, and I think Scott, the way Skiles approached that team, that young team especially, had a big part to do with it. And, you know, Steve Clifford maybe isn't as, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, crabby perhaps is, is the right word, but, you know, Steve Clifford is, is very much in the same vein as Scott Skiles. He focuses on what teams need to do to win and, and doing the basics and the foundation of what it takes to win. So, you know, I think if there's a big difference between what the, what the rebuild was the first time around after Dwight left and, and the rebuild now, it's that the Magic have a coach that knows how to help young teams win and get young teams thinking about the right things. And, and hopefully that sets up the hierarchy or hopefully that sets up an atmosphere of, hey, when we win, we all eat. Uh, you know, if, if we're winning, everyone's going to get theirs and you don't have to worry about it. And that's, what, that's actually what's going to get you paid. You know, you can put up good numbers, but if you want to make a mark in this league, you got to win. And Clifford says it all the time. This league is about winning in the playoffs. I mean, he is not afraid to talk about that, about how important it is to be successful in the postseason and to get there, you got, and to do that, you got to get there. And, you know, obviously in his time, both in Charlotte and Orlando, Clifford's proven that he knows how to build the foundation to help young teams kind of surprise people and get to the playoffs. And so I think, I think more than anything, like Clifford is the biggest difference between what the, how the Hennigan era started and how this rebuild is getting set to start. And, and I think that he is as vital as any, any player or any person uh, in the magic organization right now. I think that's a, I think that's a really interesting point and, and, and a key one, like <clears throat> we have, we always do this thing where it's like, Oh, you're a veteran coach or, Oh, you're a rebuild coach. And, and I have, I, I know the narrative is going to come like, well, you know, it'll make more sense to bring in a, a younger guy and give him his first opportunity 
um, and you know, for the rebuild. And then what's going to end up happening is anybody who, who's a proponent of that two or three years from now, three or four years from now, when the team is ready to win, quote unquote, you know, want to bring in a guy like Steve Clifford, who's, you know, a veteran coach and ready to take them over the top. So, you know, as long as Cliff is on board for developing young players, you know, keep the guy here. And because I think, like you said, you know, look at Dwayne Casey in Detroit. You want a quote unquote veteran coach and somebody who understands the league and the expectations that you have to place forth um, on young players um, to be there from the get go. I think that's the way to build that trust. That's the way you build a culture. And when you keep pulling the string every two, three, four seasons, bringing in new voices, um, I think you end up with what, with what the Magic had over the last decade or so, which is um, just kind of inconsistency. Um, and then you have to blow it up and you have to have a new plan every couple of years. All right, let's talk, let's talk process. Josh Cohen, did the process work? Depends on, I guess, the interpretation of the question. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it basic for you, very simple. <laughs> no, but you're right. It's like, it's the most, it's the simplest question and there is a very complicated answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so early in the process to truly know how it's all going to play out. No, I mean the Philadelphia, I mean the Sam Hinkie process. Oh, you're talking about Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the magic. Okay. No, the, the actual process. What? Well, the, the trademark process. Gotcha. So we're, we're, we're talking <laughs> Sixers now. Okay, so I have mixed opinions about this. I mean, they're the perfect example of there's not, I would say it this way. Sometimes it takes a long time before you hit the jackpot. In mm-hmm. their case, they had those four years where they were picking high in the draft and two of them, they scored big with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. They kind of struck out with the New Orleans Noel year and Michael Carter Williams, although he was the rookie of the year, it didn't really last that long in Philadelphia for him. And then Jaleel Okafor a couple years later didn't work out. But by getting the two superstars around those other guys, they were able to move along and now are in contention potentially to make a deep run and maybe even win the whole thing being the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. So the basic answer to that question is yes. I think they did what a lot of other teams aspire to do when they're looking to hit big in the draft. And sometimes it takes a few years before you can land those gems. And for them, you know, it really only took, you know, let's say four or five years before it went from being at the bottom to being a quality playoff team. And now arguably, you know, in contention for a title. So did it work? I'd say generally yes, but the jury's still out and there's no conclusion on it yet until I think this playoff run is complete. Uh, but certainly if they can make the finals this year, then I would say absolutely it worked based on what their goals were from the beginning. And uh, because Embiid, as long as he stays healthy and Simmons are still relatively young, that they have many more years left to continue to make more strides. And I think the job they've done surrounding those two guys with, you know, quality shooters, quality defenders across the board, they have great death as we just saw in the two games against the magic. I think it all bodes well for them moving forward. And uh, I'm excited to see how they're going to gel in the playoffs together because they have the, the package that usually is most effective in the postseason. They have length, they have versatility, they have guys who can switch in pick and roll. Uh, I think some underrated guys off their bench are Shake Milton and Matisse Thibel, you know, Thibel being already one of the premier defenders and Milton is a guy who can, 
you know, play in multiple scenarios, either on the ball or off the ball. And uh, I like the way he's able to attack the paint. So, you know, Seth Curry, Danny Green, two obviously tremendous outside shooters. Tobias Harris is having a career year. So, uh, yeah, I, I think right now they're in a good position to uh, make a statement at minimum in the postseason and then potentially uh, win the whole thing. It, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they won the whole thing this year. No, I don't think so. I don't think me either. But yeah, and see, that's the tricky part, right? And, and that's what can be really scary for Magic fans, especially Magic fans, um, you know, who are who are very engaged is the idea that, you know, it's been nine years since the Dwight trade happened. You've had two playoff appearances. Um, and signing up for the process, signing up for that level of rebuild – um, can be really daunting. And so, Dan, like, you know, I asked the question because I'm not sure. I, I, think we, I think we all agreed that the idea of kind of tearing it down, adding picks, at, mainly picks, um, but making sure you have salary cap, cap flexibility, using your G League team the way that they did, and developing talent and, and, and assets more so than anything else, um, that's all well and good. But maybe you need, and this goes back to the kind of mixing the, the roster a little bit, making sure you have some veterans. Maybe you don't need to go as overboard, right? Okay, so, so part of the entire idea is to add a whole bunch of picks so that you can afford those misses. You can afford, you know, to crack a Jalil Okafor egg if you're making in a Joel Embiid omelet, uh, for instance, but, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, like, you know, I – I don't know if you need to go that overboard if you need to dive in that deeply. And then, you know, the argument on the other side is, well, you know, Milwaukee didn't have to do that. If you just draft properly and if you find your Donovan Mitchell or your Giannis or whatever, um, then you can do it that way. And so obviously there's, you know, there's more than one way to build a championship contender. Um, but I love kind of debating the back and forth on, on the hinky era because, hey, they haven't won the championship yet. Although I think the fact that they're a contender is kind of proof positive that what, what they wanted to do worked. I just don't know if you need to go that overboard, Dan. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, that's certainly the question. Look, if you get lucky in, in the draft, Utah's proof that, uh, hey, if good players fall to you and you select them, <laughs> you don't have to go uh, necessarily all the way to the bottom. But I think the different thing about this magic rebuild, and this is where you know Jeff Weltman and, and John Hammond deserve a lot of credit, is that, and I kind of mentioned this before, is that they have a head start. Yeah. Uh, not, not too many rebuilds have a former number one pick like the Magic do and Markel Fultz coming back from injury. You know, not many of them have a, a top five, you know, promising pick or a top six, top six with you look at like Jonathan Isaac and, and Mo Bamba. Now, you know, they also have uh, a number of young promising players and a guy like Cole Anthony, RJ Hampton, who's extremely raw, but possesses, you know, true, unique athletic gifts, uh, you know, the Wendell Carter juniors, et cetera. So they have uh, a bunch of lottery tickets already in the system uh, to work with. And then on top of that, in addition to their own picks, you know, it's like every other year they're collecting picks, whether it be from Chicago or Denver or Chicago again. So they don't just have to rely on like being bad for, you know, a number of straight years in order to stock the cupboards. The cupboards to a degree are stocked. Uh, and then on top of that, they're going to add two promising 
young players in this draft, most likely. That, that's almost a guarantee. So when you look at that collection of talent, they have a number of lottery balls. They just need one of those to struck, strike and become their Joel Embiid, their Donovan Mitchell, et cetera. And then, you know, if they do that, they're on a good pace. And then you just have to add the players around them. So that's, I think, the, the difference between this Magic team and some of the rebuilding teams of the past is they already have a lot of lottery balls within the system of young players with promising young talent. They just need some of them to hit. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, like, to be clear, I don't think anybody thinks, and I think we can all speak with fairly good authority, like the plan is not to win 19 games for three consecutive seasons. Um, because if you do, then that speaks to, like you said, Dan, there's already a lot of young young talent on roster. So if next year, the year after, this team is going on and winning 15 to 20 games, um, then that means that the young players are not very good and they're not getting any better. Uh, and that's no good for anybody. Philip, when you look at who we have now and, and what you're looking at as far as the young roster goes, like how do you kind of go through and rank um, just, you know, personally, your excitement to watch the development of Cole, RJ, Wendell, Chuma, um, Markel. I mean, there is a young core with a whole lot of very talented players. Who do you think probably has the best potential or, you know, um, you don't need to go completely fanboy, but like, who are you most excited to see develop and who do you think might be um, a potential superstar more so than maybe anybody else? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think, and this, and, and not, not to, not, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll play the devil's advocate here, be, be a little bit on the negative side. You know, I, I, I still think, you know, while the Magic have a ton of really good young talent and impressive young talent, the one thing I think they're still missing is a guy that that screams All Star, that screams, this guy is going to be one of the fifteen best players in the league. And obviously, I think that's fair. That's fair. Obviously, and obviously, like to win in this league you know, the best players win in this league. I mean, you know, you know, if you want to win championships, you need the, you need the best player in the league. You need a guy who's going to be an all NBA player. And it, it's not a chicken or an egg issue. It's the best players are on the best teams and the best players help the best teams win. Um, right. uh, so, you know, so, you know, I, I think that piece is still missing, but uh, you know, the, the, the I, I've said this for several years now, though, the one guy on this roster that has an elite skill um, is Jonathan Isaac. Um, you know, I think, I think next year will probably be the last year for the next, you know, five, six seasons that Jonathan Isaac will not be an all defensive team. The only reason he won't be on an all defensive team next year is probably because, you know, the magic are going to be super cautious with his injury. You know, he's probably still going to be knocking off some rust coming back from an ACL tear. I mean, we watched, you know, how, how long it took Chuma Kiki to kind of get himself going uh, after missing a whole year with a torn ACL. Um, the the ACL, ACL tears are not death sentence injuries. The only thing they cost is time. It just it just takes a long time to come back from them. Um, so Jonathan Isaac to me is the one guy that I'm really interested in seeing because obviously like he is a, you know a pterodactyl on defense. Like he is everywhere. Um, and, and you know we even saw his rookie year when he was he when he didn't know a thing about playing defense in the NBA that you know he can he he can be a problem defensively just being on the floor and playing with any kind of effort. And I have no reason to think that he won't get back to that level. Um, the question with Jonathan Isaac and the question that I'm most interested in seeing is what can he do with his jumper? Can he get his jumper? Can he get his offensive game to a level that he's scoring 18, 19 points per game? You know, I, I think that the player comp that I've come up for Isaac is, is Andre Karolenko. And like Karolenko was a borderline all-star for much of his, for his career in Utah, at least. Um, he was a defensive ace. I think he was a, he was the last kind of wing player, the last non-center to lead the league in blocks. I think Jonathan Isaac can very much be that kind of guy. And, but obviously, you know, you look at this Magic team, their offense is the biggest issue. Um, you know, they need shooters, they need scorers. 
Uh, and, you know, while I think Cole Anthony is a really gifted scorer and, and I think RJ Hampton has potential to be a really gifted scorer, it's not clear who's going to carry that scoring burden. Um, you know, Fult, Marco Fultz will help because he's just so good at getting downhill. Uh, and, and I think the Magic will have to be a little creative to make sure their five best guys are on the floor at all times. But right now, Jonathan Isaac, to me, is, the only, is really the only player that I see that just very clearly screams, this guy has elite talent and all-star potential. Um, and, and getting him back and getting him fully healthy is, is going to make the biggest difference for this team until we, uh, you know, at least until we know what the Magic are getting in that draft pick. Josh, as you spin it forward, having players like J.I. and Chuma and Markel to a certain degree, Mark, I think Markel has untapped defensive potential um, that oftentimes we overlook. How much... How, how much can you expedite a rebuild and how much quicker can you get good when you have young players who are, who are pretty darn good on the defensive end of the floor? Like you look around the league, there's just not young players who can defend, you know, there's, there's a Coro and there's just a handful of guys who are under the age of 25 and know what they're doing on that end of the floor. I think, it, I think it's obviously been a key uh, for, for Jeff Weltman and John Hammond. You know, they've, they've targeted guys like that. And if you got a young group of guys, it's a pretty darn good idea to have guys who can play both ways. Well, I mentioned earlier that one false narrative in the NBA is that the team that acquires the best player in the moment always wins the deal. I think a second false narrative in the NBA right now is that nobody's playing defense. In fact, I would argue that some of the best defenders of all time, all time, are currently playing. Now, I know recently Draymond Green said that he's the best defender of all time. It's a stretch. He's not probably the best defender of all time, but there's an argument to be made that he certainly is one of the best of all time based on his overall skill set on the defensive end, whether it's a backline defender, kind of like a middle linebacker or on ball or over screens or calling out plays. I mean, he is by far and away something that maybe we've never seen as far as the overall package. Uh, there's a reason why the Sixers and Jazz are the top two seeds in their, in their conferences. Ben Simmons and Rudy Gobert. They're the two leading candidates for defensive player of the year. And it's one reason why the Sixers and Jazz are the number one seeds in their respective conferences. And that goes across the board. When you look at last year, the Lakers, I mean, they essentially won the championship aside from the fact that they have two of the best players in the NBA and LeBron and AD, but their defense was so good. Yep. They have so much length. They have so much versatility. They can switch. They could play all different types of matches and it becomes extremely favorable and much easier for coaches when you can throw out different options for assignments, depending on who you're playing, depending on what the matchups look like. So when I, and I think obviously the magic have built their roster, not just in this current era, but over the last several years with defense in mind first and in the drafting of Jonathan Isaac, the drafting of Mo Bamba and now trading for guys like Wendell Carter, even RJ Hampton, who has shown some defensive promise I just think bodes well for their future because there's a lot of teams out there that are so offense focused. They just think they need to run and gun. They need to have like a Houston Rockets, Phoenix Sun style offense to be effective. But to, to, to the contrary, in my estimation, the first and foremost thing that needs to be established is playing top notch defense. And especially under Steve Clifford, who's proven that he can get a team to gel on that end of the floor. I just think, that should be the main focus at the moment. And then once you have your defense established, obviously you need to add on the premier score or at least one, maybe two of them, and then surround them with shooters. But if you're not a great defensive team, it's not going to matter. You know, I, I think 
Could Brooklyn be the exception this year? Sure, because they have three of the top 10, 15, 20 scorers of all time. It's a little bit different of a scenario. But even when Golden State was winning their titles, you know, even though they had three of the best offensive players in the league in KD, Curry, and, and Clay, they were top three in defense every year. Right. So to me, it's not going to matter. And we, we see this across the board. Look at, look at Sacramento. Sacramento has De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Harrison Barnes, Marvin Bagley. They're all very good, if not elite, offensive talent. They rank 30th in defense. Portland, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, two excellent offensive players. They rank 29th in defense. Uh, to me, it's, it's just not going to matter how good you are offensively if you don't have the defense figured out. It, I mean, again, there could be exceptions, and maybe this year with the Nets is one of them. But what we've seen the last – well, not just the last few years, but really all time, uh, it's defense first. I mean, if you can't stop the other team in the pl- playoffs, especially, it's going to be really hard to win a seven-game series. So I kind of like the idea of sticking with b- defense being the primary focus as far as the, the narrative that you want to create with your team. And then obviously you want to add in that premier prolific score to make sure you have enough offense to carry you through. But, you know, by having Jonathan Isaac, now Wendell Carter, and then we'll see who they draft. I just think the front line is going to be stout defensively. And I think there's a Chumo Kiki is another one. I mean, his versatility, his ability to uh, switch his lateral quickness, uh, I, I think is very impressive. I mean, he shut down many guys throughout the season. So uh, I, I like the promise of this team defensively. And if they can add on to that in the draft by also getting enough offensive talent, I think that just bodes well for the future. Yeah, it's going to, I mean, there's, there's going to be some options um, defensively as far as, you know, you keep Michael Carter Williams around and you're talking Chuma, you're talking Wendell, um, potentially Mo blocking shots, get Markel back, J.I. I mean, there's a, you got some dogs um, defensively moving forward. And I think Steve Clifford will be a very happy camper uh, if you can get all those guys on the floor together. And then, yeah. You know, you sort of figure out the offense from there. I'm, I'm going to start a new podcast with Josh. It's called False Narratives. And we're just going to do once a month. We're just going to get uh, what, what kind of crap are people talking across the NBA, uh, the NBA um, sphere. And then uh, we'll just we'll just take it down. Uh, all right. Before we go, let's just go through. And I want you guys' final picks. Like, Dan, who do you like from either conference? Why? And, um, and how excited are you for the postseason? Well, first off, extremely excited for the postseason. Uh, and the, the thing I'm most excited about is what makes it difficult to, to make your picks. Because what I really want to see, what I'm going to be paying closest attention to, is you have two teams that were kind of built from the, the ground up internally. When you look at like Utah and, and Phoenix, and Phoenix obviously made the Chris Paul trade, but you know every team needs a, a little bit of additives here and there to push them over the edge, versus you know teams that were kind of built with the star power narrative. And you look at you know teams like the Lakers and, and the Clippers, and which is going to win out in, in this particular type of year? So. And we could see that matchup, those matchups quicker than expected with the way some of the, the seeding broke out. <laughs> you know, that could, that could happen real quick. And then you look at these play-in tournaments, uh, that's going to be some exciting basketball. So, so, like you said, I'm exceptional, exceptionally excited about those elements of it because, to me, that's going to dictate 
what maybe those false narrative conversations are <laughs> after we see the results for those. There's going to be instant reaction of how to build a team based off what happens in that Western Conference and who comes out of it. So that's going to be the interesting thing to, to pay attention to for me. I really liked Denver prior to the Jamal Murray injury. So that one, you know, kind of made me hit the reset button. I like the way that they were structured, uh, especially for the playoffs and their ability to operate in the half court. So I'm hitting the reset button a little bit there and, uh, and going to have to reassess my pick. I think for a lot of reasons that, that Josh mentioned, uh, I like Philadelphia in the East. And again, it's going to come down to that, you know, narrative conversation that I'm talking about that may end up being the overarching discussion when we look back on this playoffs is, you know, the star power of adding a, you know, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, both through free agency, James Harden, you know, via trade versus Philadelphia, who went through the process and, and built themselves up that way. So I have a feeling that's going to be the overarching discussion we have after the playoffs. So that's what I'm really closely paying attention to is which side's going to come out on top. Phil, what do you think? I mean, I think the, the, it's going to be really fascinating uh, the way that the seedings are set up in, in both conferences. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to say Milwaukee is completely out of the picture because they've obviously, they're obviously kind of the two-time defending regular season Eastern Conference champions, although they'll be the third seed in this year's uh, playoffs. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they go up against a team like Brooklyn and how Brooklyn comes together. But to me, Brooklyn, when they've been at full force, has sort of been kind of the unstoppable force. Um, you know, I, I've been... I've been kind of weeding all season to see how teams defend them in the playoffs and how they handle James Harden, Kevin Durant, and, uh, and Kyrie Irving at the same time, uh, and, and whether there's a defensive scheme that can, that can stop them. And, 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 you know, I think while Brooklyn's made some incredible strides defensively under Steve Nash uh, as the season has gone on, at the end of the day, that team is just, is just so capable of outscoring you. And, and, and I think it's going to be, you know, we talked about how, you know, it's a false narrative that no one plays defense in the league right now. This is, you know, we, when we see defense, when we see defense really matters in the playoffs, when you can really drill down on what teams are doing, get prepared, and, and you see it over and over again, and you just kind of learn how to stop it. Um, you know, I, I often tell people, you know, like the regular season is about consistency and what you can do every night. The playoffs are about can you beat teams that know what's coming? And that's where the superstars really come into play. And that's why Brooklyn is such a, is, is just going to be to me like the most fascinating story of the postseason and of the playoffs, especially because Philadelphia, I think, has what the first or second best defensive rating in the league. So when we get that Philadelphia Brooklyn matchup, it's it's going to be the unstoppable force meeting the resist, or it's going to be the um, the the immovable object meeting the unstoppable force, and it's it's going to be a really fascinating uh, series. And, and you know, I I don't know if I'm quite ready to pick a winner yet. Um, you know, I think Philadelphia did a lot to improve their offense and and add some shooting, which was desperately needed. Uh, but, you know, do they have enough firepower to stop a Brooklyn team if they're clicking on all cylinders? And obviously that'll be a couple months down the line. A lot's going to change by then um, for, both, for both teams and certainly for Brooklyn. And I think Brooklyn's the kind of team that could get better as the playoffs go on since they're essentially using it as their season to get used to playing with each other. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting and we'll see how they come out of that, come out of a potential war with Milwaukee. The West to me is as wide open as it's ever been. Um, and, yeah. and the Western playoffs are just going to be amazing. Um, you know, Utah obviously had an incredible regular season, but I'm a little concerned that they're two, three point reliant and, and they're not going to be able to get inside. And especially with Donovan Mitchell out or Donovan Mitchell coming back just for the playoffs. 
a normal year, I'd say, okay, that's fine. You can deal with the eight seed. The eight seed is going to be Stephen Curry and the Golden State Warriors or, 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 or potentially the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, that is not an easy, that's not an easy or regular seven or eight seed for a team to go against. I mean, I think Phoenix is probably a little perturbed that they're going to probably have to see the defending champs uh, in the first round if the Lakers win that play in game on, on Wednesday. Um, so it's, it, 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 I don't think the top team should feel super safe. Um, you know, obviously Denver, as, as everyone was mentioned, is, is still pretty good. Although I agree without Jamal Murray, I think they're lacking something they'll need for the playoffs. Um, you know, the only thing Phoenix is lacking to me is experience and maybe Chris Paul makes up for that. So, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll edge Phoenix ahead. I'm just not super comfortable with them playing the Lakers in the first round because the Lakers with LeBron and AD, you know, the one, one thing that I think is true and, and, and maybe Josh can, can disagree with me on this one. I don't think this is a false narrative. If you have the best player in the series, you have a chance to win. Um, mm. You know, we saw that when the Magic had Tracy McGrady in 2001, 2002, and 2003. He was the best individual player in all three of those series. Um, and the Magic, you know, as a lower seed pushed, you know, Milwaukee as a seven seed, you know, certainly had their chances against Charlotte in, in that in that 4-5 matchup, which was frustrating to say the least. Uh, and then, you know, obviously took Detroit, had a 3-1 lead over uh, an eventual championship team in Detroit um, as an eight seed. So, LeBron and AD as a seven seed, just, just, you know, you're just introducing a little bit of chaos. So it, it feels really impossible to predict what's going to happen in the Western conference. And, and, you know, I, I think it's between Philadelphia and Brooklyn in the East, but East essentially, but um, it, it, it feels like it, it feels like this is the most wide open we've seen the NBA in a very long time. Yeah, I know. I agree like a million percent about, about how wide open it is for a variety of reasons. I think it's, I think it's because of the, um, uniqueness of the schedule. I think the fact that the defending champs are seventh because they had injuries and, um, and you know, you can make the argument that the injuries might end up saving them and propelling them deeper into the postseason. Because one thing I know about LeBron is um, he might need to, to still work that ankle back a little bit, but it saved his, his quads and it saved his hamstrings and it saved everything else getting a little bit of rest. And Lord knows that team needed it. Uh, I think like Portland in the three, six matchup, to be honest with you, they've been playing really good ball. Josh brings up the defensive um, inadequacies that they have, but you know, Denver is a different team without Jamal Murray, certainly. Um, So that's going to be interesting. Josh, um, how do you go through and kind of handicap what you're seeing in either conference and, and what are you most looking forward to as far as the postseason goes? Well, first off, I will agree with Phil that if you have the best player in the series, you have a legitimate chance to win the series. So, yes, as much as I've emphasized the importance of defense, I'm also very aware that if you have the most prolific score, you have a legitimate chance of coming out on top in the series. So let's get that out of the way first so there's no confusion. Uh, I also agree with both uh, Dan and Phil that it just feels like Philly Brooklyn is destined to make the conference finals, and and that's going to be an intriguing matchup. And, and, and Phil mentioned this as well, is they've improved defensively as the season has got on. So credit to Steve Nash and that coaching staff for helping those guys, especially through all the injuries that they've had to uh, still be not as poor defensively as they seem to be early in the year. So they've made some progress in that area. With that said, I think I am going to stick with Philadelphia. To me, they just have the whole package to be the last team standing. So I'm going to stick with them, although I'm a little torn. I, when, the, when the Nets made the, the James Harden trade, I was like, wow, there's no way anybody's going to keep pace with them and they're going to end up winning this thing easily. But I also didn't think that Philly was going to be as dominant as they've been. Um, you know, obviously, NBA has stayed healthy for the most part throughout the whole year. And I'm going to say this. I understand Simmons has 
in most people's eyes been a disappointment offensively, not developing an outside jumper, sometimes being just super passive offensively, not even looking to score. But, and I touched on this earlier, he might be, in my opinion, in the last 10 years, he's a top five defender that I've seen. And he wasn't drafted first overall back in 2016 with the idea that he was going to be an elite defender. Everybody assumed he was going to be an explosive athlete, a dynamic playmaker, someone who's going to get his teammates involved, run the floor well, and be a quality defender. He has transformed from what I've seen. Not only should he, and I know Gobert has been great too defensively, but he should run away with the defensive player of the year award. I've been amazed at how many different guys he's guarded and has been effective. He's guarded everyone at every position, one through five. Uh, it's truly amazing what he's accomplished. And, you know, when, when the all-star announcement was made that, that Simmons was, uh, you know, an all-star, at first I was like, hmm, over Trey Young, I'm not so sure. But when I really looked closely at it, it was a no-brainer. I think the coaches clearly recognized it as well. Uh, Simmons guarding, whether it's Durant one night, Giannis another night, Anthony Davis the next one, uh, Donovan Mitchell the next. I mean, every type of player, an explosive player, a post player, a cutter, a spotter, the whole getting over screens, uh, like I said, guarding in the post, guarding in transition, uh, just just remarkable in my estimation. So with that said, I, I think I'm going to – I'm going to go with the Sixers out of the East, but I think it'll be close between them and Brooklyn. And then the West. Things set up really nicely for the Lakers here. I mean, assuming they beat the Warriors, Phoenix, and then probably Denver, maybe Portland in the conference semifinals. I don't know. I mean, it all hinges on LeBron's health, obviously, right? I mean, if he's basically 100%, I don't think either Phoenix, Denver, or Portland could beat the Lakers. Um, But – we don't really know completely if LeBron will be at full strength. So they're kind of a wild card. So with that all said, uh, I'm actually going to go with Utah. Uh, I know they are three-point reliant, but, man, they spread the floor so well. Their ball movement is exceptional. And as I have already mentioned, their defense is top-notch. The only thing that concerns me with them is they don't have a true like top-10 player in the league, and usually you need that to make the finals. But maybe this year is different and unique. And uh, Mitchell has shown flashes of being that type of player. And maybe defensively, Gobert is just so intimidating that he can drive them uh, in a, in a seven-game series on that end of the floor. And plus, he, he led the league in field goal percentage for what that's worth. I mean, he averaged you know, like 14, 15 points, but he did lead the league in field goal percentage, so that has to count for something. But they're, they play textbook offense. The, 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 the technique, the strategy, the implementation – uh, they, they play some of the best, most cohesive ball that I've seen. Maybe Golden State did too during their, their uh, dynasty. But like maybe the Spurs are the last team I could think of that mm. played as cohesively as this year's Utah team. So they've been really impressive. I'd say the Clippers, but I'm worried about their point guard situation. That's what haunted them last year. And you always need a quality point guard to, to make it far. But they have a chance too, obviously, with Kawhi and Paul George. But I'm going to go Utah-Philly. Utah, Philly. I like, I mean, Hey, you basically said like, okay, these are the two best defensive players in the league. Um, and that's, that's what wins knock down some shots and defend um, and be able to, to be varied, you know, in yeah. matchup oriented and based. And they both have enough, like, obviously they, they're both also great offensive teams. Sure. So the combination is what compels me to pick them. It's, it's not just because they're both great defensive teams. It's the fact that Embiid's going to, I mean, think about going against Brooklyn. You know, good luck to DeAndre Jordan, 
and that entire front line. Yeah. It's going to be Blake. I mean, it's going to be a bloodbath. But a but, like you said, like if they can still put, you know, one twenty up every night, then I don't know if it's going to make a difference. I know, I know. No, listen, I'm I'm fifty fifty on it. (laughs) This this is the year where you don't necessarily in Brooklyn's case. They are so unique because you're talking about three. Uh, in my estimation, Harden and Durant are both top ten scorers of all time. Kyrie's probably top twenty. I mean, you, we've never seen that before. I mean, uh, Golden State came close, you know, with KD and Curry, and then Clay's really good, but not quite on this level. On top of all that, too, Josh, like Durant, Harden, and Irving have played what six, seven yeah. games together. We 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 don't know what this looks like yet. That's seven that's the games. crazy part. <laughs> Seven games, and, and but but but, and I'll just throw this out there to you guys. Like, does that give you real cause for concern, or do you think are you able to figure out something that something that big with three players that prolific in the playoffs in round one? I mean, they're going to have what uh, you know, uh, h- however many games against that first round opponent. Like, if this were the West and they were playing Dallas as a six seed, or you know, the Lakers as a seven seed, I'd be worried. But playing. You know, I guess maybe Boston could be a little bit more of a challenge. Like the the playoffs will help them figure it out. Like it's it, the play. We all we all know the playoffs are a completely different animal. Like their weaknesses will be exposed, but they'll they'll have the opportunity to kind of work through them. I think and again, it's the East, not the West. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think that helps them a ton. I will say this too: the, a sleeper team from they're not going to probably even get out of the first round. They might even make the playoffs actually. The way the Warriors have played the last, like, three weeks, if they just had a better big man. Kevin, Kevon Looney is solid. He's a good hustle guy. He plays hard. He's aggressive. He's good on the, on the glass. I've watched a lot of their games the last few weeks. They've really impressed me. I'm not saying they're the, the Warriors from a few years ago, but there is something about that, too. If they just had a big, I would actually consider them to pull off a couple upsets, but hmm. they might even make the playoffs for, that's, for what that's worth. But like, uh, a, bit, a big like James Wiseman? <laughs> well, if he was maybe five, maybe five years from now, but like <laughs> Wiggins Green have both been extremely good defensively. Jordan Poole, underrated guy off the bench. I think next year he could be a sixth man of the year. But obviously Curry's playing at a level that maybe we've never seen before, um, at least his style. But they're a sleeper team for me. I, I don't think they're going to win a series, but they've been intriguing the last couple weeks. So I just wanted to mention them. Um. No, and it's I love the idea of, and I wish we weren't robbed of Denver with Jamal Murray, but I love looking at that conference and going like, I think Phoenix is probably a year away just because of some of the, um, you know, between Aiton and like I love Bridges, I love Bridges. Maybe give it a year and let those guys, um, just get a taste of what this is. Hell, Booker probably needs a year to to experience what it's like at this level. But I mean, I think Utah is absolutely a championship team. The Clippers are like kind of quiet, like the Clippers and Bucks are two teams with championship expectations and rosters, and yet nobody's really talking that much about them. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked if either of those teams came out of the conference. And then anytime you have a defending champion team um, with, in my estimation, the best player of all time, and they're sitting there at the seven seed in this weird sort of playing scenario, like the Lakers are just going to wreak havoc. Like, hell yes, I like the Lakers to beat yeah. Phoenix in round one. Yeah, um, if, if that's how it shakes out, they're the freaking Lakers. Like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. The things set up perfectly for the Lakers if they win the game against the Warriors, which they probably should, because you're talking about Suns and then either Denver or Portland. I, I don't see any of those teams beating the Lakers, assuming LeBron is close to, if not 100%. Me neither. I agree with you. And I've gone back and forth all year. I mean, ask me one day, and it's it's going to be Lakers-Sixers. Next day, it's going to be um, Clippers-Nets. It's going to be – I know. Me too. It's, it's another, be- another, another thing about this whole thing, 
Are we going to have full attendance by the time we get to like the conference? The big key, Josh. Absolutely. I, you know, you know like, think about 50, the jazz. 50% percent of Philly is equal to, to a full I attendance. Know. Somewhere I mean, what was it? The, I mean, I, that, that could actually be a huge factor. Cause what was it? Home, home win percentage this year was the lowest it's ever been in like NBA history. I think. Mm. Yeah. Or in the la- at least like the last 15, 20 years, like no the, like the lack of the lack of lack of like consistent crowds, like definitely affected the standings a little bit. Well, and, and Philadelphia and Brooklyn are both, we're both um, good home teams. I mean, Philly was 29 and seven at home. And, and see, that's the thing is like, you know, in, especially in the postseason, you know, I, I think during the regular season, it, it's, a, it's obviously a, a more sterile environment as is. But you get into the postseason, you're talking about that one big moment with, with a whole bunch of Philadelphians screaming um, at Billy Kennedy, you know, to, to make a call in that moment. And that can be the difference uh, in game six or seven. And, and it is. I mean, it's, um, that, that stuff matters. And so, God, it's been such a weird year. <laughs> you think back on it, like, we're not going to forget this one. Um, zooming zooming interviews and doing all that good stuff uh, i just want to commend all three of you You did a phenomenal job pumping out content very difficult season um asking questions pre and post game uh the three of you guys do an outstanding job it's philip rossman reich and make sure you follow and read all of his stuff locked on magic podcast orlando magic daily uh get him on twitter at phil r squared and then of course at o magic daily Dan Savage and Josh Cohen from OrlandoMagic.com. Dan underscore Savage on Twitter. Josh underscore Cohen underscore NBA um, on Twitter as well. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a blast. I'm sure we'll be in touch uh, throughout a very, very important offseason. And thanks again for for all the great work uh, over the course of the year. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Jake. And if I have a a final word, other than uh, thank you for doing drive time and carrying that uh, every day around this kind of season, that's not easy to do. Um, also shout out Dwayne Bacon for playing in every game coming to just about every practice in this type of season, uh, to do that quite the feat. If, if there was an award for that, I know the team recognized him the other day. I, I just want to recognize him too. No, that's fun. That's a great call. It, like there's a handful of guys across the league who did that. And I don't think any of them were on 21 win teams, were they? Like everybody else, um, everybody else, it seems. And I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but everybody else, was on uh, was on playoff teams and, and contending teams, and Dwayne was. You talk about a good soldier, man. That guy showed up um, in in some sometimes the most difficult of circumstances. So, uh, good call, Dan. Shout out to Dwayne Bacon. This has been Magic Weekly. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in all season long. Uh, we will be back with it'll be Magic Monthly basically uh, throughout the postseason, but we'll have all sorts of content um, around the lottery coming up. We'll do a, a playoff special. Get our thoughts. Um, on, uh, on what's going on here in the postseason. And uh, we'll be back next year, of course, with uh, Magic Weekly. Thanks again for tuning in. Jake Chapman here with you. Follow me on Twitter as well. It's at Jake Chapman OM. Until we speak again, stay safe, everybody.